Wonderfully dramatic. I'm going to miss that trailer. <laughs> okay, we're going to have our Bible reading. First of all, we read every week from Scripture, the Bible. It's, um, there are many amazing books in literature, but there's something about Scripture, holy writing. Uh, it, it describes itself as God-breathed. And there's something about reading, sitting under the authority of the waves of God's truth and grace. Uh, expressed in word through scripture that, I don't know, speaks to some element of us that no other piece of literature quite manages to do. So here we are. I'm in Colossians, Paul's letter to the church in Colossae. I'm just going to read one verse uh, there, uh, actually it's two verses, 13 and 14 of chapter 1, and then I'm going to go to 1 John chapter 4. So if you want to put a finger in or bookmark or whatever you, you can. I see some people have got book form, fantastic, old school, uh, but you may be on a tablet or phone. So if you can put a bookmark in 1 John 4, I'll come to that in just a minute. But here we are in Colossians chapter 1, a number of the, number of the uh, verses on that trailer are taken from Paul's letters to Colossians as he speaks about Christ. And this is what he says here, verse 13. Uh, he, he started off by saying, we well, thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray for you because we've heard of your faith, etc., etc. And then verse 13, for he, God, has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's such a key truth, I'm going to read it again. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And uh, just over in 1 John chapter 4, I kind of had this passage at the start of this series, and I'm kind of, it's like a bookend. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm finishing with this reading from chapter 4, verse 7. John writes, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Father, it's our prayer that our minds and our hearts, our souls, our whole lives would soak and marinade in the truth of your word. Speak to us, reveal to us by your spirit more and more of the complete Jesus that we live our lives in a transformed way as a result. For your glory. Amen. Amen. So it's Advent Sunday for uh, the um, ecclesiologically literate amongst us all, that's us, Advent from the Latin ad venera, come towards, uh, and it just, it's the time when we remember that God in Jesus has come to us, 
uh, that first Christmas we're preparing to celebrate and that he will come to us again to consummate the whole of creation, the new creation, new heaven, new earth. So Advent, someone described it, I saw this on social media, I love this. It's the hush in the theatre between the house lights going down and the stage curtain rising. That's a great description of Advent, isn't it? The hush in the theatre as the stage lights dim and the curtain rises. He has come, something's happening, the light's going down, he has come, he will come again. Advent is when we prepare to celebrate the good news. And here's the thing, over this um, series, as we've been looking at the complete Jesus through the lens of heresy, uh, some of the first, the, sort of first two, three, four centuries of the Christian faith, lots of heresies around the person of Jesus Christ. And uh, as we've been sort of unpicking them, hopefully we've been tearing away the kind of things that the mists that shroud us from being able to see Jesus in his complete uniqueness. And I wonder whether sometimes this, this idea of Jesus being good news has, has dulled a little bit in our day-to-day experience. Whether you know, we come to church faithfully and we sing the songs, we do all the right things, and we, we kind of know that the, 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 you know, we know the Sunday school answer, the answer is Jesus. You know, he's, he's the answer, he's good news. And yet, if we're honest, if we're really honest on a dark, Tuesday afternoon at the end of November, does, does, it, does it really feel like Jesus is the answer? Jesus is the good news? Leslie Newbigin, who is um, a bishop in the Anglican Church, he served in India for um, several decades, actually, as a, as a missionary, Christian missionary in, in India. And towards the end of his uh, sort of life and ministry, he came back to this country and he was, he was quietly shocked at what he discovered, having... Uh, kind of become attuned to the culture in in India. He came back to Christianity in the West and he was shocked at at how easily Christians in the West had had kind of accommodated their faith to fit in with the prevailing culture. He wrote a number of books on this. I guess his seminal work was The Gospel in a Pluralist Society. And and this was his critique, that that Christians too easily just go with the shifts and the tides and the currents of whatever the prevailing culture is. Now, sympathetically, we might say, well, look, that's that's Christians wanting to be relevant. And I think that's what, um, to to try and have a sort of create a bridge across which Jesus can can walk into the cultural context. And I think that's probably what many of the, the heretics that we've been, you know, kind of picking apart. But I think that's what they were doing. They were good men. They were, ma- they were mainly men, but they were good men. They were learned men. They were wise men. They were thoughtful men. They were Christian believers. And in seeking to make the Christian faith relevant to their surroundings in, in either one way or another, they just drifted away from the centrality and the uniqueness of Jesus Christ, particularly in the context of his dual natures, he was fully God and fully man. And in so being, was thereby able to save and rescue us. And we've, we've, we've kind of looked at, um, we've looked at these sort of heresies as, oh yeah, they're kind of years ago. You know, the, the, these were kind of, we've, we've kind of, we're more sophisticated, we're more learned, we've, we've come a long way since then. They don't really apply today. Really? We looked at docetism, which is this idea that, that if Jesus was God, 
the, you know, fully God, the holiness of God. He couldn't possibly have sullied himself by becoming a human in all our mess and compromise and muddle. And so Jesus only really appeared as a human being. He, he was God, but he was only really, you know, he just, he wasn't really human. And we say, yeah, 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 yeah. But I wonder whether as Christians in the 21st century West, whether we, we, without sort of fully realizing it, we're quite docetic. I mean, just, I mean, let's be honest. Kind of a lot of what we do when we gather together is a bit weird. I mean, just if you think about this building, I mean, you know, we, we come in and say, oh, yes, lovely building with the arches thing. But it's, it's a bit weird, isn't it? I mean, who, who, would, who thinks about designing a building that has just got acres of empty space that you've got to kind of heat and light with sort of a pointy building and a roof that's almost impossible to get to when it leaks? I mean, it's one of the, if I'm honest, it's one of the most impractical buildings known to man. Churches, and yet you, you go up and down, oh yeah, everyone recognises, oh look, there's a church. It looks completely different from any other normal, sensible building. Or, or like when we come into the building, we, we do some slightly weird things. We've just exchanged the peace. Well, if you think about, hey, by the way, the, I love the worship, and I love our worship leaders and our musicians. Amazing. But do you ever find yourself, and if I'm honest, a bit of a confession here, sometimes I find myself thinking, what am I singing? First of all, first of all, I mean, weird, we're standing in a building singing to a screen, like a sort of spiritual karaoke. <laughs> weird. The Godhead. We sing about the Godhead. The Godhead. The Godhead. Three in one. Father, Spirit, Son. The Lion and the Lamb. I mean, it's a bit weird, isn't it? It'd be surely the Lion and... <laughs> Maybe we should sing the lion licking his lips and looking a little fatter. If, if, if we're going to be, I mean, it's just a bit odd, isn't it? No wonder when we think about whether I could invite a colleague from work to come along, you think, hmm. Once a month, we have this ritual where I actively encourage you to eat a bit of Jesus' body and drink a little bit of his blood. You don't think that's weird? And what it is, is how we cope as Christians is we, because we, we want to hold together some kind of integrity. So what we do is we spiritualize it all. And we, we, we think about the cross, which again, if you think about the cross, what we're doing is singing about a gruesome murder. But we, we kind of, so we, how do we, because like that's, that's weird. So how do we make it not weird? Well, we kind of spiritualize it. And so we compartmentalize it away to a Sunday. And so we do all this weird stuff. We just put all the weird stuff together into an hour on a Sunday. And we'll do the weird stuff where we kind of connect with Jesus in a spiritual way. And then we go back to normal life. Phew. Back to the office where there's kind of talk about what I got up to the weekend and there's swearing and there's banter and there's all sorts of stuff going on. And that's normal. <laughs> that's just... No, Jesus, there's no, way, there's no way the lion and the lamb with Jesus kind of holding it all together. There's no way he's going to be in the office banter on a Monday afternoon. So we kind of, we become docetic. We go, oh yeah, the spiritual Jesus. The significance of the cross, but not, not the reality. We don't, we don't often think, do we, about the, the gruesome physical reality of his murder. We, we, we sing about the cross. 
and what that means to me. And we've, we've slid into docetism, even today. Or what about the other tendency around us, the other way, Arianism? Docetism is that God wasn't really human. And if, uh, actually, if I, can we have the, I don't know if we've got the image of the, the air-sea rescue, which has kind of been a, a metaphor for our series. Yeah, this idea that as we find ourselves in the predicament of a freezing cold sea and we're miles from shore, and we kind of, we're alive, but we're recognizing we're in a context that's going to kill us. We are going to drown unless something happens. And, and here's the rescue, but the rescue's only truly effective if, if the rescuer, there he is on the line, is, is connected both to us in our predicament and to the helicopter. Docetism is, he's connected to the helicopter. He's dangling on the line, he's fine. He's part of the whole rescue thing but he never really enters our experience. And Arianism, Arius argued kind of the opposite, or from the opposite angle. Arius says that, that Jesus was definitely human. And I, I can, you can counter that, if you've, those of you who've done Alpha recently, uh, uh, since they've done the film series, and they've got these fantastic vox pops, they just go around and interview people, and, and in the early um, talks in the series, the Who is Jesus talk, as a Vox Pots, you know, who, you know, who do you think Jesus is? And a lot of the answers are, oh yeah, he was a good guy or a teacher. He was kind of, yeah, he was a leader. I think he healed a few people. He was just a good guy. But to the question, or the inferred question, was Jesus also God? And, and many of those same people, no. No, he, he wasn't God. The, the question that's actually asked is, do you believe Jesus rose from the dead? Was Jesus resurrected? And, and most of the people, no. No, I don't believe that. One of my favorite bits in that Vox Pops actually is a guy, because you know when, you, know when you don't often speak about something and someone invites you your opinion and so you, you venture something and you think, oh, it's more of an extrovert thing really. You, you discover what you actually think when you speak. And um, there's this one guy and he goes, uh, oh yeah, Jesus, yeah, no, no I, I sort of, yeah, I think he, he lived. And then, they, um, and then they crucified him and you can see him beginning to go, oh yeah, I know more than I thought I did. Yeah, then they crucified him. And probably the guy with the mic behind the camera is just nodding, you know, anymore. And so guys, yeah, they, they crucified him because like, you know, they were jealous of him. And you can see, oh, now I've said that. What, 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 do, I need? what do I say now? Yeah, they were jealous of him because, because and he looks at his mate and he goes, because he was getting all the birds. <laughs> I'm not sure, I've, I've, I've read a little bit, I don't think. I'm not, no. I, did he rise from the dead? No. There's one guy, he's, you can tell, because he appears fairly regularly. He's quite a thoughtful guy. Um, and and uh, did Jesus rise from the dead? And he just goes, no. People don't do that. Jesus was a man, a human being. He lived on this earth. He ate our food. He breathed our air. He felt our emotions. He, he did everything that we... But he wasn't God in human form. In other words, uh, if we deploy the metaphor, he's in the sea with us and he's a strong swimmer. And he's been in the sea before. He's not feeling as cold as us maybe. He, he's, he's looking like he could maybe rescue us except that, except that he, like us, is miles from shore in a freezing cold sea that is, is going to claim us both unless there's external intervention to take us out of that situation. Here's the thing about our contemporary heresies that derive from those ancient ones. Whether they're offshoots of deceitism or offshoots of Arianism. Whether we believe that, that Jesus is kind of fully connected to the rescue, but he, 
isn't engaged with us or that he's in the sea with us but he's not connected to the rescue whichever end of the spectrum you fall on here's the thing Jesus can't rescue us if you if you fall in line with those heresies there is no rescue but what do we read? I love this, this line. It's just one little line in the letter to the Colossians. Verse 13 of chapter 1. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness. It's a different metaphor. It's like we're stumbling around in the dark, falling over, stubbing our toe at risk of injuring ourselves, maybe falling over or off a cliff or because we can't see. We're in darkness. And he has rescued us from darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. The son known as the light of the world. Out of darkness, into light. He has rescued us. See, if I'm so infected by my heresy, then I, I have to kind of, I have to do if Jesus doesn't really rescue, because I don't really believe he's God, or I don't really believe he's with me, on a Wednesday morning or a Thursday afternoon, if I don't really believe that, then where's my rescue going to come from? It has to come from within. That's why if you haven't had a chance to, if you weren't here last week and you didn't listen to to Johnny uh, speaking brilliantly last week, download it on YouTube. Neo-Gnosticism. It's like another contemporary heresy. that It's it's the whole deconstruction. There is no sea or danger in the sea. There's no land. There's no air sea rescue. It's just you experiencing what you're experiencing now. So you create your own truth. You rescue yourself. You are your own rescue. And that leads us to Pelagianism. Do you remember that? That I've got it within me to please and placate an angry God. I've got it within me to to overcome sin. I I can do it in my own strength. I know I've been a little bit lax recently, but if I just pull my socks up, try a bit harder, thing about that is this and I, I reckon Pelagianism is probably along and it's, it's sort of morphed kind of Pelagius morphed into Rousseau as Johnny talked last week that it's, it's you know we're, we're contaminated by that but we ourselves are, we're fine we're okay and, and we just need to explore inside ourselves find the goodness within ourselves but the trouble is that is that if our salvation is referenced horizontally as it were if our salvation is referenced compared to other people because we're not we're not referencing our salvation our rescue ultimately with you know as it were the helicopter it's just all the other swimmers in the sea then then how do I assess how I'm doing how how effective is my salvation and and the answer is well at least I'm better than them they look they're about to go under I'm a stronger swimmer they're shivering so I'm, I'm doing okay compared to them. And our salvation becomes so flaky when we reference ourselves and our salvation, our rescue, our sense of shalom, of wholeness, of well-being, just with other people who are also in need of rescue. It leads to two things. Either to pride. I'm doing better than them. I'm doing okay. I'm all right. I, I, I've cracked this. I've, I've got life sussed, which is, which is spiritual pride. I don't need God. I I can do this. I'm God. Or it leads to despair. I'm drowning. (laughs) They seem to be okay, and I'm not. I don't seem to be doing okay. I I need help. 
they all seem to be okay. Self-rescue, referencing oneself in, in salvation, kind of creating your own truth will lead either to pride or to despair. Colossians 1.13, for he has rescued us. That's the good news. That is the good news of the gospel. That's what Advent is uh, here to, to help us to do, to prepare for receiving this good news. John Stock puts it like this. He talks about Jesus Christ being God's self-substitution. God's self-substitution. It's how we understand the atonement, the at one of our rescue, that God himself, as it were, comes down in the form of a rescuer, Jesus Christ, to clip us into his harness, to take us out of death, to restoration and new life. God's self-substitution. I looked up the word substitute. It means acting or serving in place of another. Jesus Christ acts or serves in place of us. Just think about a substitute for a minute, just to think of the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. When we strip away the heresies, the good news is that Jesus is the most effective substitute acting on our behalf. Think about a substitute. If we just use the sort of sport in general as a metaphor, you can riff with your own favorite sport. I'm gonna go with rugby. Although my favorite sport at the moment is football, because Fulham are doing quite well, just saying. Back on rugby, because that didn't go too well. <laughs> Substitute needs to be exactly like us. If you game of rugby, and you know the second half, they start to sub off the, the guys who are beginning to get a bit weary or maybe a bit injured. Well, if you're subbing a rugby player, you want another rugby player to come on. You don't want to substitute a rugby player with a snooker player or a darts player. It's not going to go so well. And, and not only that, there's no point, like, just to get down to you know, the, the, the actual detail of a rugby team, there's no point substituting a prop with a scrum half. They'll get murdered. You substitute a prop with a prop. You want a substitute to be exactly like the one that's being substituted. But here's the thing. Here's how substitution works. At the same time... You also want the substitute to be completely unlike the one being substituted. So if a player's got an injury, he's, like, he's done ligaments, he can hardly walk, and he's kind of hobbling off the pitch, you know, go, oh, right, uh, it's a ligament damage to the left knee. Can we have someone with a ligament damage to the left knee to, to come on, because we need a substitute to be exact? No. No, you want, like, for the unfit, you want a substitute with the fit. Someone who's really tired, you want someone who's really fresh. An effective substitute is at one and the same time exactly like the one being substituted and exactly unlike the one being substituted. Can you see how Jesus, as fully God and so unlike us, but also fully man and so completely like us, therefore uniquely is the most effective substitute for us. He is God's substitute. Reaching down into our death, into the icy waters that will kill us, 
in order to clip us into him. The, the analogy doesn't completely work because obviously you want the rescuer to stay alive. Jesus dies. I mean, it, it's, it's going beyond where the metaphor can go. He, he takes the full burden of our sin. It is finished. Literally in the Greek, it is like a debt paid. It is paid. Done. In order that the death that we deserved is lifted from us so that we can walk into brand new life. And God picks us and pulls us out of the icy depths of the sea into the warmth, relative warmth of the helicopter, a, a blanket, food, soup, and into hospital and eventually home. 1 John 4, 9, this is how God shows his love for us. Jesus Christ, our perfect substitute, rescues us from death and brings us into the dominion of the son he loves. This is love, John writes. This is God's love in action. You know how I wonder, I wonder if we read it a little bit like this. And then again, could be a cultural thing that just steers us into a heresy. Look at it with me, 1 John Chapter 4, verse 9. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us. I wonder whether we read that phrase, this is love. God shows his love for us. And we read it as duty. God kind of, God kind of had to do it. Oh, look at them again. Look, look, drowning in the sea again. Oh, in their sin again. Oh, here we go again. I suppose I ought to come and rescue them. It's like we've realized a sort of, oh. You know, maybe it's because we've got these sort of latent parent models. God bless, I don't know what your parenting situation is. Some of us parented really well. Some of us not parented really well. But maybe it's school teachers, authority figures as we were growing up. And it's sort of, oh, oh. I can't, oh. But I've put myself out for you to get you back on the straight. No. Duty. It's not like this is love. Love. So, forgive me, it's a self referential thing, a particular experience in my life. But when, our, well, when, we, when we were privileged enough, Joe and I, to have children, and, um, and you, you, you feed them with breast milk and eventually nature takes its course and, and the little nappy, tiny little nappy they're wearing, fills up. And, 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 and pre-solids, well, like when they're just on breast milk, babies' nappies are, are really nice. It's like a sort of mild chicken korma. I had no idea. I had no idea. And I, I said, so, so, oh, Tim, can you? Yeah, no, I'll change a nappy. I think if I store it up, I'll do as many as I can early on. So I'll store it all up. So, yeah. I sort of lie them down the thing and just open up. Oh, Ooh, well done, you. Nice little boo. Now, some of you, some of you, you, you'll be aware of this. Maybe others aren't. So, look, if you remember nothing else from this talk tonight, here's a helpful little tip for just as and when the time comes. When they go onto solids, it's a very different story. I remember thinking, I, didn't, I had no idea. Complete naive, naive dad. I thought, yeah, yeah, I'll change a nappy. So I plunked them down just recently on solids. Open up the door. Oh, flipping neck. Ooh. I kind of, you know, I had to sort of surgical gloves, gas mask, and operating at a distance. This little thought was all used to me cooing, and now it's like dad's kind of like this. Stinks. 
Nappy changing went from, from joy to duty. Oh gosh, I'm trying to find reasons why. Yeah, I'd love to. I'm just in the middle of doing something else. Could you do this one? No, no, one, no one really wants to change a nappy. You just kind of have to change a nappy. It's kind of duty. Brace yourself. I've thought about whether I should say this or not. I'm going to say it. God elected to come into the midst of our shit. Stench and all. And he doesn't shy away. He doesn't. No, this is love. This is tough love. He knows it stinks. And he comes anyway. He comes to change us. I love this quote from Dane Ortland. He says, Jesus is positively attracted to what most needs to be changed in us. If you think of those elements of your life as a, as a stinking nappy, and Jesus is attracted to that, that's his mission, to come into a broken world in order to mend it, to come into a hurting world in order to befriend and calm it, to come into a fractured world and heal it. He loves that. That's why Jesus came. His love is a missional love. He goes to the least and the last. He goes to the unlovely. He goes to the stinky elements of our lives. He's drawn to the sin in us, not because he loves the sin, but because he loves us and wants to heal us from our sin, to rescue us from our sin. That is love. Two things. It, it, it helps us to focus on the missional element of Jesus' love. He, he hasn't come for a cozy, comfy sort of little bless up on a Sunday. It's this tough, intentional love. He knows it stinks and he comes anyway. And for us, if we can, this Advent season, if we can allow that truth, this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and came into our mess and our muddle, into our stench and stain. And if we can grasp that, it will free us to be more honest about the ugliness of our own sin. Because you see, if, if just going back to, if we are our own rescuer, then, then we, we, we like to kid ourselves that there's really not much to rescue we're fine, it's okay. And so we begin to deny the fact that all of us are prey to original sin. Do you remember, those of you here, my child in the flower bed? A defiant look, aged two and a half. It's in every single one of us. We've just grown up becoming a bit more sophisticated, but it's there. And we know it's there if we're honest, but we kind of have to deny it and cover it up. And the beauty of this is love is that we can embrace the fact that God chooses to come and rescue us from the sin in order to restore us, to clean us up, to make us whole again. Hey, um, there was a bit of uh, feedback on the PCC because every now and then, we, I know from the front, we sometimes at the five, we say, oh, at the 10.30, we had great fun. No, sorry, the 9.30, we had great fun. We had amazing, we had this great visual aid. And then at the five, you just get a boring talk. And... Um, so some of the people on the pieces that go to the five say, could we, could we sort of join in with some of the 9.30 japes? <laughs> Visual aid coming up right here. Okay, so um, little bottle with an exclamation mark on it because it's got iodine and iodine stains. Nice, beautiful, white, 
handkerchief, depicting the way in which you'd like to see yourself and the way in which I'd like to see myself. Pretty good. Oh, yeah. But this is, if we're honest, this is the reality. Now, actually, that, that kind of is the reality because most of our lives are good. I'm not, I'm not trying to... I'll speak like, a lot of me is really good. I'm perfectly capable most of the time of being thoughtful, selfless, kind. So are you. But if I'm honest, I know about me, and if you're honest, you know about you. That notwithstanding all of this, there's that. And we, we go, well, just let's just why don't we just there 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 that's better that's the kind of Rousseau stuff that's the kind of neo-gnosticism it's all okay and yet and yet look what's seeping through because we can't hide the reality that we are in need of rescue we're cut off from God and, and so we, we think well, okay look, what we need to do is just water um, and a um, scary thing Okay, we just need to wash it. I'll just, I'll just wash it. Come on, come on. Oh. And, and actually, all that happens is I'm, I make it worse. I don't rub it out. I rub it in. Oh, what a wretch am I? Paul says, Romans seven. Who will save me from this life of sin? Not Paul. We can't save ourselves. We. We're drowning in the sea. This is the good news. When we can, when we can embrace the fact, I've got, a, I've got a stain and I, I can't cover it up. And even if I try, it's just still there. So what I do, out there they call this magic. In here, this is mystery. That's <laughs> how I get away with it. What I did this morning was I went over and pretended to fill water. We had a baptism, and I pretended to fill water from the font. That completely freaked out the family whose kid were baptized. <laughs> Bear with. I'm just saying, but this morning I got a round of applause. <laughs> Call that a round of applause? No. Completely gone, completely dealt with. That's what Jesus uniquely does. We we try to rub it, rub it out, and we only end up rubbing it in. Jesus didn't come to rub it in, he came to rub it out. He came to engage with our sin, to rescue us, to bring us into the dominion of the Son He loves. He doesn't come despite our sin, he comes because of our sin. That's the good news. And at Advent, it's a season when we prepare to celebrate Emmanuel, God with us.